G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We'll open our talkback lines shortly, but it is an invitation today to consider how we consider things and the fact that we all feel entitled to our own opinion, whether it be our take on politics or on vaccines, on parenting or the value of religion. Everybody wants to have their say and everybody loves to be right. A question we don't often ask is, what does it mean to think well? It might be the difference between certainty and confidence, the nature of facts and how we respond to others that we might disagree with. Well, our special guest today is interested not only in what we think, but how and why we think. It's important because we not only think for ourselves, but also for the good of others. We might be confronted by the idea that so many today look only for the sorts of thinking that confirms their own prejudices. We might even say that confirms our own prejudices. It might also be the case that many don't think much at all because it's too overwhelming to think or it's too confronting to think. Well, our guest through this coming hour, Dr. Mark Stevens, is a senior research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. He has a PhD in ancient history from Macquarie University and a Master's in Divinity from the Australian College of Theology. His latest book is called The End of Thinking. And Mark Stevens, a special welcome along to 2020. It's a great delight to be with you, Neil. Mark, just uh, give us a little insight here. You're in Sydney. You're under a pretty heavy lockdown. What's life like for you right now as you're uh, talking to us today? Well, life is reasonably okay, relatively speaking, for me because I have a job that means I can work from home very easily. I live in a lovely suburb uh, and so there's plenty of space to walk. So... It is frustrating in some ways, but also uh, a little bit uh, slower pace than I'm normally used to with the commute being reduced. But it is hard times in our city. And a little insight too into your work with the Centre for Public Christianity. Yeah, so I'm what's called a senior research fellow, which is I work with some other research fellows. We produce content for the media. We produce talks for schools and Christian organisations. And our basic mission is to present the Christian faith in all its truth and beauty and goodness into the public square. Well, we're going to be talking about thinking today, and this is something you have thought long and hard about, uh, so much so that you've distilled your thinking into a book uh, called The End of Thinking. Give us a little overview into what uh, you know causes you to think about how we present this sort of idea and what it might mean for the way we're thinking today. Yeah, well, I've wanted to be a good thinker for 
most of my life, since I was in high school, I've wanted to think that I am a good thinker, but I've realised over the years that I'm nowhere near as good as I think I am. So that's been the first realisation. And then for a 10-year period of my life, I was a college lecturer at a college called Excelsior College, where I trained performing artists in thinking through their craft theologically. And in that context, speaking with people who didn't necessarily see themselves as thinkers, I've got a real passion for actually helping everybody think, whether they saw themselves as academics or not. And it got me to thinking, how would I help someone become a better thinker? And that's where the book really started in my mind. I imagine there'd be a lot of Christians who might be thinking, well, who is this? Uh, you know, who's this academic trying to tell us how to think? But in some sense here, you're on the side of Christians and we might reflect on the Bible. You know, uh, Paul's word in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then testing those good and right things that we ought to think, uh, things that God has put in place. Is there a sense here in which Christians ought to be the people who say, yes, there is a different way of thinking and we need to learn that? I think Christians should be people who, looking at their Bibles, see that human beings, for all the brilliant things that we can do, are also people who can get things quite wrong. And so we especially should be able to respond to the story that is in the Scriptures that says that human beings need to ask hard questions and go, can I do this thing, which is now thinking rather than other things that we might look at, can I do this thing better? Uh, is there a log I need to take out of my own eye before I take a speck out of someone else's? If we're talking about thinking and what starts, I imagine, in the mind, uh, then it turns into what's in the heart and then ultimately into our behaviours. So I imagine mm -hmm. poor thinking leads to poor behaviours. Good thinking leads to good behaviours. So what are your thoughts about, if you talk about the end of thinking, I, I think this is probably in the shallow end for what you like to talk about, but, but our thinking's important, isn't it? Absolutely. It drives what we do. It drives how we respond to people uh, as the way we think is the way we go, the way we move. And so our behavior is influenced by how we see someone else, how we see a topic. And if we get a topic wrong, we can cause great harm to one another. That's probably one of the big takeaways from the book is that to get things right or wrong and to think well really changes not only our own life, but it also changes changes the lives of those around us. Uh, Mark, the problem here, of course, I imagine is that everybody thinks that their thinking is good, uh, even people whose thinking is bad. What are your thoughts here for the idea that we all think we're thinking right? Yeah, well, certainly we have uh, a poor self-awareness of how good we are at thinking. There's actually a, an effect in uh, the literature that is sometimes talked about called the Dunning-Kruger effect, named after the two researchers who looked into it, where they basically tried to work out, do we have a good self-awareness of our own competence? And basically what they concluded is that we all think we're experts pretty quickly. And we've probably noticed this over the years, and particularly recently, that most people feel like they're experts in the pandemic pretty quickly, or most people feel like they're experts in what happened in their sporting team's life over the weekend, that we easily overestimate our competence on a subject and think that we have all of a sudden earned a doctorate in it.
Okay, so we can think good and we can think bad. I guess we're talking about uh, extremes, uh, extreme good, and there could be extreme bad in all of that. What about this idea that many of us uh, are not thinking at all? Uh, the, the fact that we're not thinking in such a way or because we think it's too difficult to think through at all and we just go along with the flow. What are your thoughts for that person? Yeah, I think the person who wants to avoid thinking is, first of all, understandable. Some things really do make your head hurt and some questions are really complex. And so it's easy just to not have to think about it because then I don't have to put all that effort in and consider all those hard questions. And let's be honest, thinking sometimes makes us uncomfortable. And as the American thinker Stephen Garber, Garber once said, thinking implicates us. If we think about something and we realise the seriousness of a topic or the difficulties of a topic, it, it changes what we might do within the world. So it's understandable that we sometimes want to avoid thinking about it. But we all know what happens when we avoid things that we really need to do, when we avoid going to the doctor when we really need to do it, or we avoid dealing with the garden when we really need to deal with it. Uh, when we avoid thinking about things that we really do need to be keeping front of mind, uh, in the end, something will grow, maybe in the short term, maybe in the long term, that will pro probably have a negative effect not only on our own life, but also on the lives of others. Well, when we're humbling ourselves, uh, we perhaps recognise that we have to rely on the thinking of others and uh, we have to appreciate that there are others who know more than we do. Now, there are going to be some things like, you know, if I take my car to the mechanic and uh, it needs a service, I recognise he knows more about my car than I do. But there could be other big issues where the ethics are important and who we put our trust in for those ethics is going to be ultimately how we begin to think about topics, isn't it? Absolutely. So evaluating experts and understanding which experts we can trust and which experts we might want to be a little bit more questioning of is one of the hard things of life because you're exactly right. I know very little about a lot of topics. And so there are so many cases where I have to rely on other people and one of the ways that you want to evaluate experts is to not only evaluate what's coming out of their mouth, but also what is their character? Are they the kind of person who, for example, would omit a mistake if they did make a mistake? Are they the kind of people who looks like they take into account the way that their opinions affect a whole wide range of people, not just their own tribe? So there is important questions of character that we need to take into account. I imagine one of the best examples, and we won't get only into a polit uh, politics type of conversation today, but when it comes to elections, uh, this idea of evaluating the character of those who are candidates or uh, those who are ministers and the prime minister and the opposition leader, and then also the policies. But in a Christian sense, uh, we're evaluating those things from a Christian view of things, aren't we? We are. And we can't ask that all of our politicians be Christians. That wouldn't represent Australia's present population. Uh, but we can ask of all people that they demonstrate certain commitments to, uh, to truth, to integrity, uh, to a desire for the common good. And in many respects, it's character that's going to determine good policy, uh, not just the specific things that might be promised or announced at an election. I want to ask 
does this person uh, have the kind of character that I would want when something surprising and new happens, as it always does? At the last election, we had no idea that a pandemic was coming. And so we want people in place who we know are committed to the common good of all Australians. We want people who respond to the truth of what is actually happening. Uh, we want people who are committed uh, to justice and fairness for all and to enable the flourishing of all people. So those questions are incredibly important in politics, irrespective of whether they're a Christian or not. If they are a Christian, we can definitely examine, do, are they people who follow through on their commitments to Christ in uh, the way that they respond to all that the Bible has to say? Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Wonderful to have you with us. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Our Facebook question today, do you think Aussies are vulnerable to being trapped in a bubble that only reinforces our prejudices? You can find that question at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Our special guest is Dr. Mark Stevens. He's a senior research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. His latest book is called The End of Thinking. And Mark, this part of our conversation here, as we think about the way most of us think, you say that we tend to be led by intuition, not reason. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, it's not my insight to begin with, as is most of the case of this book, which is that uh, a number of different researchers, people like Daniel Kahneman and Jonathan Haidt and various other neuropsychology type people, have pointed out that we tend to think fast more than we think slow. So we have lots of decisions we've got to make throughout the day and we have lots of reactions we've got to make throughout the day. And for most of those, we have to think fast because if we thought slow about everything, we would never get anything done during the day. So we have all these intuitive responses to how we drive, what we're going to eat, uh, how we're going to respond when someone speaks to us in a certain way. And that's totally fine except there are some things in our life that we do need to think slow about and often we need to review some of the ways that we intuitively respond or think fast, at least periodically. And so it's no uh, disservice to us that we think fast at least some of the time, but it's good that we build into ourselves the habit of thinking slowly and thoughtfully at other times to go, are my intuitive responses helpful? Is the way I react intuitively to this or that issue or this or that happening in my life something that's helpful so we are all creatures of intuition we have to be but at times we need to stop and actually think about how we're responding on most things in life wonderfully uh, important concepts you are raising here and uh, if we might just sort of dwell on this for a moment because what you're saying is when we have an intuitive response uh, to whatever issue, and it could be political, it could be to do with all sorts of things, uh, even like vaccinations or even the biggest controversies that are going on right now, we have an intuitive response that we don't actually think about. It just is a response that's there. But because it's there, it's come from somewhere, and that's what's happening a little deeper down uh, in this sort of uh, deeper secondary level that you're discussing mm -hmm. here. So if we mm -hmm. shape that secondary level... That actually will affect our intuitive response. Is that the way you're thinking? 
Correct. So if we take the time to reflect, and it will take time, which is why we can't do it all the time, because again, we'd never get anything done. But if we do take the time to be patient and to work on our intuitions, then we might actually find that our intuitions change. For example, it might be that there might be a next door neighbor who you've seen and you've never really met them and intuitively the way that you've responded to their behavior has been either positively or negatively and it might be that on occasion of reflecting upon how you've responded to them you might have realized actually I'm actually quite prejudiced against them or I'm quite pro them and I haven't asked hard questions and so it can be that you could think your way to a point where your intuitions might change and hopefully by thinking slowly about something, your intuitions might map to reality a little bit better. Now, at the risk of taking this really super deep spiritually here, your thoughts, Mark, on what happens to the person who comes to faith in Christ and often we'll talk about those things, won't we, about a transformed life. Uh, we talk about, you know, the renewing of the mind. Uh, all of these sorts of things are, in, in fact, uh, uh, the sort of changes that take place so that what comes out intuitively as we begin to mature in those things is very different to what used to come out before. Any thoughts here on the, the spirituality of how we think? Certainly, and that's the joy of the Holy Spirit in our life, that the Holy Spirit is a fruit producer, and so transforming us from the inside out. Paul talks about the fact that we no longer see these things from a worldly point of view, and it is the case that sin affects even the way that we think, and therefore redemption will affect that with the way that we think. And so that is a process in which God is wonderfully transforming us and taking the lead in that, and yet there is also the case that we need to, in all ways of sanctification, cooperate with the work of God's Spirit and actually respond and actually cultivate the very things that he is pointing us towards. And so at the core level, if we think about the fruit of the Spirit, that will shape the way that our thinking reflects things like peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and so on and so forth, that those things that Paul talks about with regards to the fruit of the Spirit are also things that need to shape us in the way that we think at a very, very deep level. Okay. It is a deep conversation today, and I do want to invite listeners to join in to the conversation. You might have your own insight to offer. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Mark, you talk about some interesting things in your book. You cover idiot brain and lobotomies and the yes. difference between certainty and confidence and the nature of facts. Now, <laughs> what do you mean with, uh, with an idiot brain and, uh, and lobotomies? Okay, well, uh, the idiot brain is just simply referring to the fact that we all have those moments. Uh, sometimes we might, if we're a little older, call them seniors moments. Sometimes we just have those moments when we're younger, when we do things that are just plain mad and one of the words to describe that is idiot brain that sometimes you have a moment where you go what were you thinking why did i do that and it's a capacity that we all have you can be the smartest most educated person in the world it doesn't mean you can't do something profoundly dumb or stupid and that realization is just simply that that's a capacity within all of us uh, the reference to lobotomies no i don't spend very long on this but it uh, refers briefly in the book to the history of lobotomy 
uh, as an example of where people who were experts in the field actually propounded some medical techniques that were quite horrifying. And it's just trying to point out that even though experts are very smart and very clever, they can get things wrong. And so whenever we hear that an expert has said something, uh, we need to take that seriously and respectfully. But it's also true that an expert can get things wrong. And anybody who has read history knows that that is the case. Okay. We're inviting listeners to be part of our conversation. You can call in, be part of the talkback conversation. But uh, there's a response to our Facebook question. The question we're asking today is, do you think Aussies are vulnerable to being trapped in a bubble that only reinforces our prejudices? Q phoned in and says, how is Google, the all-knowing God, affecting our thinking and exchange of ideas? Uh, what have you uh, thought about so far as that type of issue, Mark? Yes, I think the whole sense of the internet raises important questions for us. I think there is a tendency to either put too much trust in Google or too much trust in any search engine or media company and to not ask hard questions about, well, do, does Googling something actually give me all the access to the information that I would want? And it can be the case that, for example, you can buy uh, placements on Google and you can put yourself further up the rankings. Uh, most media companies and other companies on the internet would know that there's a thing called search engine optimization. And so what that means is that we do need to not assume that the first thing that Google gives back to us is always the best answer. Uh, that doesn't mean assuming that Google's giving us the wrong answer, but it does mean that we need to ask questions about, well, why would Facebook recommend this particular page to me? Or why would uh, Amazon rec recommend this particular book to me? And it's not so much being nefarious, it's, it doesn't need to assume some grand conspiracy, but it does mean to say these are companies, they're making money, and maybe sometimes they don't always operate in my best interest. And so it's good to have healthy questions about anything we do, particularly on the internet. The idea of artificial intelligence and the use of these algorithms, and it may not even be driven by one personality, but the way the machine, in fact, uh, influences the way we think. Any thoughts here of, of the way we're being influenced on so many different levels? And it's coming from a machine, not necessarily from people. Yeah, that's that's important, and uh, I know that there's some good stuff being written about AI uh, heading into the future. I think John Lennox brought out a book on that last year called 2084, and I would commend people to read that. Uh, in terms of the AI, it, it's also with regards to how have we set the machines to kind of what kind of result do we want uh, the AI and the algorithms to bring about? And one of the scary things I think about media in, in the present day is the desire to uh, keep people clicking and keep people going further and further and just staying on the website or staying within the social media shell. And unfortunately, one of the trays of 
human beings is that we tend to like sensational stuff. We tend to like stuff that maybe appeals to our baser instincts. And so it can be that you go on YouTube for something innocent and then you get recommended something that's a little bit more extreme and then a little bit more extreme and then a little bit more extreme. And it may be that it actually pushes us more to extreme opinions in ways that actually aren't helpful for our conversations. Mark, let's move into uh, part of our conversation here about the idea of perhaps how you can rescue being lost in other people's thinking. Because, you know, if thinking is being directed by so many different forces and even those algorithms that are directing Facebook and YouTube, perhaps we don't want to be captivated by that thinking. And how do you think we actually rescue being lost in just a pool of everybody else's thinking? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's tough these days in terms of being able to uh, find uh, who are the wise voices and who are the uh, who are the people I should be listening to, and so uh, I think it's asking healthy questions and perhaps uh, consulting multiple different groups of people who have proven themselves trustworthy in the past. So it's quite fine to use Google and it's quite fine to use the internet, but then maybe if you have some trusted people in your life who might know about a topic, sit there and go, hey, this is what I've found. Am I on the right track or where are the things that, what are the things that I might be missing? Uh, One of the things in our day and age is that we have enormous access to information, but not necessarily the wisdom to know what to do with it. And so it's always helpful to be able to find multiple people who might be able to guide you to, I've read this on the internet or I've saw this at the local library, but is that actually a good source or is there some more things that I might need to be considering? Talking good sources, we'll often say, and particularly on this program, that uh, the pastor at your local church, the pastor or the priest, is going to be a good source of wisdom and sorting through some things that are true and some things that are dodgy. But the pastor at church, uh, for a lot of people, is only, you know, is only on the air for a half an hour a week. Uh, If you just happen to be in church, if you can get to church these days and to see the sermon that's preached at your local church, that's being drowned by this tsunami of information and everybody else's opinion here. What are your thoughts for the typical, ordinary, average Christian who's trying to make sense of how we designate what is true and what is worth knowing and separating that from all the other stuff? Yeah, so if you're talking about a Christian's own development in understanding God's wisdom, then one of the most important things is that at our structures of discipleship that we don't just uh, rely on having one good meal a week on a Sunday and then thinking that that will last us, but we actually learn to cultivate daily habits of hearing hearing the voice of God in the scriptures and being being able to chat about that in terms of community with others and whether that might be joining small groups, whether that might be developing one-to-one Bible reading. But it is important that we not only uh, feed people fish, but also teach them how to fish, teach them how to actually understand the scriptures for themselves so that they can be nourished by God's word, even if they can't get on the live stream or they can't get to the service that week. I think also with regards to thinking well, It means taking an understanding from the scriptures of an appropriate humility 
on topics that I know that I'm not necessarily very strong on. And in my case, that's a lot of different topics. So I want to cultivate my relationship with God with daily disciplines of hearing from him. And then on topics that are just in the general air, in in the general atmosphere, I want to have the humility to know that I'm not an expert on most things. And so how do I sift and uh, develop and how do I again seek out wise voices in my life that might help me understand those things better. Taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Carol in New South Wales. Hello, Carol. Welcome along. Good morning, Neil. And uh, what was your guest? It's name? Mark. Mark is our guest. What are your thoughts, yeah, Carol? Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Yes, um, I've been widowed for nearly 40 years and... Um, um, not 40, uh, 32 years now. And uh, I have studied the Bible since I've been eight. And I graduated from college, theological college, been a missionary. And I found as a woman alone now, as a widow, um, the study of the Word of God, uh, the Bible says in Proverbs to seek wisdom and with all your getting, get wisdom. And God is the source of all knowledge and the Bible gives you an answer to all questions that arise and how to treat one another, not to think presumptuously, not to harbour grudges. So it's a humbling experience where we must die to self and go through this and it's a basis I have proven that Christ is the cornerstone and you build your house line upon line and you keep in the word study subjects and go from Genesis to Revelation on the subject how to be a good wife or how do I treat people and God helps you if you seek him with all your heart he says don't lean to your own understanding and he says that um, there's a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof is death so we must go God's way with all of our decisions, even challenges us. And if we don't like it, we still have to do it. Carol, what a wonderful fount of wisdom you are coming from those positions. Mark, what are your thoughts for Carol? Yeah, that's a fabulous thought, Carol. And thank you so much for calling. Uh, it is so true that uh, what it means to be under the Lordship of Christ, as Abraham Kuyper once said, there's not a single part of life that Jesus doesn't look at and cry, I am Lord over that. And so on the foundation of Christ, uh, we can take not only uh, his Lordship, but also his character into everything that we do. And so whether it is the meals that we are cooking, whether it is the decisions we are making about the things we want for our children, whether we are talking about the directions we want to take in life and the vocations that we want to pursue. Now, all of those things are things that are impacted upon by the Lordship of Christ and by living out of the character of Christ, which is why it is so central to have a heart and a life that is grounded and nourished by God's word as a daily discipline so that we can seek his wisdom to be his person in any and every situation. And you're right, 
that means that we can have at that moment to not lean on our own understanding, but to be able to be shaped by God's ways and God's purposes so that as we're addressing any particular topic, we're able to do that in the spirit and the mind of Christ. Carol in New South Wales, a wonderful insight. Thank you so much for calling in today. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. 1-800-316-316. You can also respond to our Facebook question today. Do you think Aussies are vulnerable to being trapped in a bubble that only reinforces our prejudices? Uh, interestingly, isn't it? Uh, when we talk about, as Carol reflected, uh, the wisdom of God, but if you don't elevate the wisdom of God to a place of importance in your own thinking, uh, you're actually just uh, floundering around like everybody else. What are your thoughts for the wisdom of God and somehow or other uh, elevating that to a place where we recognize the wisdom of God has authority, Mark? So it's so crucial to understand that God is uh, so far above us and his thoughts are so far higher than us. And so there are only really two types of things within the world. There's the creator and the creation, and we are part of the creation and God is far supreme in wisdom and in glory and in might and so therefore we have to give him first position and the wisdom of God shapes us to uh, to to understand that when he speaks uh, we must listen what we also need to recognize is that the Bible uh, gives us the capacity of wisdom within the fear of the Lord. So if we look at the book of Proverbs and other books like it, that it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it gives us a lens through which we can look upon all of the details of the world. And so there are many things in the Bible that God doesn't give a specific word on. He doesn't tell me how to make an omelette, or he doesn't tell me how to fix my car. He doesn't even tell me uh, the best way to set up my classroom if, I've, if I'm being a college lecturer. But what he does do is he, the fear of the Lord gives me the framework within, within which I can understand how and why to do all of those things so that he helps me understand that whatever I'm cooking in my kitchen needs to serve the purposes of other people and community and to give glory to him through the way that we're eating together. And the way that I set up my classroom needs to leave space for students to love God and to love others. And so the wisdom of God guides and frames all of our decision-making, even when it doesn't give me specific words on every last detail that I might be making choices on. And perhaps generalities are important too, uh, as much as specifics. I'm just thinking God's wisdom. If you're going to be a person who holds God's wisdom uh, tightly and you elevate that wisdom above all other you're going to come into conflict with people. And it could be, just for example, say around pro-life issues, where as Christians we say we're created in the image and likeness of God. All of a sudden we've got a conflict with a whole lot of people who think their wisdom on these issues is the opinion that ought to be listened to. So what we talk mm -hmm. about here is, uh, I guess, uh, when we've got the conflict, how do you deal with that conflict? Uh, I imagine you've got some thoughts here. Certainly. So we do live in an age where people don't share our viewpoints, and that's becoming increasingly the case as uh, less and less people want to affiliate with the Christian church. Uh, 
we know that we're going to encounter a diversity of viewpoints. And so in that moment, uh, we need to recognise that there is a difference of opinion that's pretty significant. And so we don't want to downplay that. We don't want to act as if there's no difference of opinion. But we also want to be patient because our aim is to persuade rather than to just have a fight. And so once we are committed to the discipline of persuasion, I think that calls upon us to practice a few things. First of all, I think it requires us to ask, what does this person believe? Uh, The second thing to ask is, why does this person believe? Uh, The third thing might be to ask the question, is there any common ground we can agree upon? So on the pro-life issues, it probably is the case that they may well have defined something like an embryo as not being life. And so we might be able to agree, well, it's wrong to kill a life, but we disagree on the question of what is a life. And then we want to ask this question after we understand what they believe, why they believe, and are there any things we agree upon We want to ask, and I get this from a guy called Tim Muehlhoff, who's a professor of communications in the United States. He says, under these circumstances and in this situation, what's the one thing I need to say in order to move the conversation forward? So if I'm having a difficult discussion over something like pro-life issues, what's the one thing that I can say in this one conversation to move someone forward closer to a position that we think brings honour to God and is loving towards others. And we might then have multiple conversations where there's one thing we say, then one more thing that we say, and one more thing that we say, because our ultimate aim is to have our differences of opinion uh, be transformed because we kindly and gently persuade those who are contrary to our viewpoint towards a greater understanding of the truth. Is there a sense in which the context matters here? Because uh, I've been in leaders' meetings where uh, the leader is very forceful about uh, what you do next and uh, how you deal with this situation or the other. Uh, And relying there, in some sense, on that idea that Paul might present there from 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And there's a certain sense that when we're getting to know God's position, God's wisdom on things, uh, perhaps there's a need for people being boisterous uh, with that. But what you're saying is when there's opposition and you come into conflict with someone who is a seeker or someone who has genuine questions on faith, there's a level of humility and and friendship that those sorts of things have to be communicated in. Yes, there's lots of different scriptures and lots of different scenarios in the scriptures of coming into conflict uh, between two diverse points of view. And one of the things we need to be careful about with regards to the Apostle Paul is that a lot of his rhetoric, that is a lot of the things that he says, are addressed to Christians, and he's talking about conflicts within the church when he's facing very serious incursions from people who are heretical, who are going to take the Church of Christ in a direction that is distinctly unhelpful. And so, particularly with the Corinthians, Paul is largely addressing there uh, the conflicts that are happening within the church between people who are claiming the name of Christ, and he's wanting to take people away from their negative influence. And I think in those circumstances, I have been in those circumstances, where we need to say, no, 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 we have a shared source of authority in the Scripture and you are out of line according to the Scriptures, and therefore we will speak quite forcefully. 
Now, when we look at when Paul goes into situations where he's in conflict with, say, for example, the pagan authorities or alternative philosophies, we notice that Paul can be quite forceful and quite strong in situations before governors and before law courts. But we also note that he does seek to persuade people and use common ground in order to be able to move people out of their idolatry and towards the worship of God. And so two classic examples of that in the book of Acts would be the way he speaks to the people in Lystra in Acts chapter 14 and the way he speaks to the people of Athens in Acts chapter 17. And on both instances, there is this attempt to establish a common ground in order that he can then move them and say, at the moment, you really don't know the God of heaven and earth, and I want to show you that you can meet him in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to build a bridge from where you are to where I am. And so we want to be careful that we don't adopt that intra-church rhetoric as the only posture that we might adopt towards those who disagree with us who don't yet know Jesus. Wonderful stuff. Let's take another call. Sandy is in Melbourne. Hello, Sandy. Welcome. Oh, hello. I'm I'm not a person who calls into radio stations <laughs> um, at all. I just wanted um, your guest thought on Romans chapter 13 about submitting to the government because that there's a lot of disagreement within the Christian community about this aspect, especially in the current um, climate. Wonderful stuff, um, Sandy. Let's get a thought from Mark. When you disagree with the authority, uh, say Romans chapter 13, uh, the idea that uh, we are to be, as good citizens, submissive to a government, but there may be a time for some levels of civil disobedience. Uh, there's some challenging things happening right now in Australia. Mark, what are your thoughts for Sandy? Certainly, and this is a complicated issue and one that my answer will inevitably be not entirely sufficient, but thank you for the question. It's a great one. I think the first thing to say is that the scriptures do encourage a posture of being good citizens as the first posture of Christians within a society. That text, Romans 13, was written under the reign of the Emperor Nero, who is hardly the most wonderful uh, political leader that has ever graced the earth. And so to therefore call for obedience to the government in that context is a pretty significant thing in context. Nevertheless, the scriptures also indicate in places like Revelation 13 and in other places throughout the scriptures, uh, the book of Daniel, that there are times when the government can overstep the mark and impinge upon the faith, the ability of Christians to worship God and the ability of Christians to be able to do the purposes of God. And in such instances, uh, people are... uh, entitled uh, to express their civil disobedience uh, by wisely working through what that might look like. Now, it can be very hard in specifics to to make a call upon that. I would say that the scriptures encourage us to do that sometimes less than we think, uh, but that line is definitely there and we need to think seriously about crossing it, but only in those circumstances when truly uh, it would serve uh, the glory of God and the and the, the flourishing of others in order to be able to do it. In general, God has established governments, uh, whether they acknowledge his existence or not, God has established governments as one of his instruments for maintaining order within the earth. And so there are important questions with regards to the pandemic and the way that policy works in that space. I personally don't think we're quite yet there at the moment that there is a sense in which the government is active. We don't 
have to agree with all of their decisions, but I don't see that they're actually trying to inhibit uh, the expression of faith in Australia. But it, it is something that we need to be aware of, and it's certainly a question we might legitimately ask. Sandy in Melbourne, thank you so much for your insight today. And time running very short. Mark, let's perhaps uh, draw together some loose ends here, because if we talk about thinking right, uh, something that is the responsibility, I guess, for every believer who's listening into our conversation today, you say we've got to get the thinking right because we, in fact, are people who are influential. We are influencers. If we're drawing some loose ends together here, let's just talk about perhaps just how important it is to make sure that you are thinking right. Yeah, I think we tend to believe that influencers are people who have a platform or maybe who are in the broadcast media or who have books out. or And we tend to say that those people who speak to hundreds or thousands or millions of people on their Instagram accounts, they're the influencers. But what about little old me? I, I don't influence anybody. And one of the realizations that we've had throughout the world in this very connected world that we have is that if you influence one person to change their mind or two people to change their mind, then if they influence each another two people to change their mind and then they influence each another two people to change their mind, that you can actually change a lot of people's minds without knowing it because you don't know where your influence goes. And so it's not like we all live in disconnected villages anymore. We have the capacity to change someone's mind. And even just to change one or two people's mind on an issue is to do something significant, either for good or for ill. And so we need to take that responsibility that to make a difference to that one life is a sacred privilege and something that we need to steward well. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation, Mark, over this past hour, and uh, there's going to be some listeners saying, well, if I miss the first part of it, I'm going to encourage them to catch the podcast a little later and to hear all of the conversation as it's developed. Dr. Mark Stevens is a research a senior research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. His book that we're talking about today is called The End of Thinking. And uh, there's some things that will be challenging for every single one of us. My encouragement to you is perhaps get a hold of this book. It is part of the Reconsidering series, books that invite you to consider how we consider things and how to do it better. You'll be able to get a hold of Mark's book called The End of Thinking at the Centre for Public Christianity website, and that is publicchristianity.org. No doubt it's available in lots of online uh, booksellers as well. Uh, Mark, how's the book going so far? Can you get a little insight here? It's only recently released, but uh, how are things going? Yeah, we're we're very happy with uh, how it's selling and uh, it's being used amongst some school staff teams. It's been used with some uh, high school school students through our masterclass uh, conferences that Bible Society has been providing and, and has generally been uh, selling well. So it's a great book not only to read by yourself, but also to read in the context of teams that you might be working with, 
to help you have great conversations together about how you navigate all sorts of complex issues. Well, complex issues need our attention too. This book is called The End of Thinking and the website for the Centre for Public Christianity is publicchristianity.org. Dr Mark Stevens, Senior Research Fellow at the CPX, the Centre for Public Christianity. Mark, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Been such a pleasure, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.